Welcome to Oncology Data Advisor. Today, we're here for a discussion in honor of Testicular Cancer Awareness Month. I'm joined by Dr. Aditya Bagrodia, who's an associate professor in the Department of Urology at UC San Diego Health System. Dr. Bagrodia, thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Aditya Bagrodia. I'm a urologic oncologist at the University of California, San Diego. I treat patients with all urologic malignancies. I have a lab that studies markers of minimal residual disease, tumor heterogeneity and evolution, and cisplatin resistance in testicular cancer patients. So what factors do you consider when determining whether a patient with testicular cancer should receive treatment or surgery? It's a great question. And I think first things first, it's absolutely mandatory to get complete and comprehensive staging uh, in my hands. You know, if you have a patient that comes in with a suspicious mass, it's incumbent to get serum tumor markers and ultrasound as an initial part of the diagnosis, then um, typically it's going to be imaging of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis. I prefer a CT scan, chest, abdomen, and pelvis. And then really, if they've got advanced disease, that's going to be widespread metastases. Typically, that's going to be chemotherapy as the upfront management options. If they've got no evidence of metastases, you know, it's really imperative to follow the tumor markers after the orchiectomy to make sure they normalize, to look at the risk factors for recurrence based on certain pathologic features, including the presence or absence of lymphovascular invasion or embryonal carcinoma in the primary, and um, understand the patient preferences uh, with respect to minimizing the chances of recurrence with any type of active intervention versus trying to avoid any further therapy with um, going on a surveillance program. What I think is imperative that all of these options are actually offered to the patient and that every case is reviewed in a multidisciplinary tumor board. So let's say that you have a patient and um, you know if they're stage one, I think generally surveillance is going to be considered the option, the preferred option, if you will. And, um, you know, there are, of course, patient-specific characteristics. If they've got, say, malignant transformation in the primary, uh, retroperitoneal lymph node section may be a, a good option that's actually endorsed by the American Urology Association. There's no real comment on it from the European Association of uh, Urology, for instance. Um, if they've got stage three disease, metastatic disease, now we're typically going to talk about chemotherapy. And really, the option for surgery, uh, retroperitoneal lymph node dissection, which is removal of all the lymph nodes in the retroperitoneum where testis cancer tends to spread. And the way it works is actually the testes begin up at the level of the kidneys. They descend into the scrotum shortly before we're born. And about 90% of testis cancer follow a path of spread right along that area uh, where the testicles descend. And it allows us to actually offer local regional treatments, such as retroperitoneal lymph node dissection or radiation therapy, even when patients have metastases to the retroperitoneum. So if it's a non-seminoma germ cell tumor patient, which is about half of the cases, and they've got stage two disease, which is going to be evidence of cancer cells in the retroperitoneum, surgery is one of the options. Now, first off, I think it's important to understand why surgery may be um, a part of our armamentarium. And there's, and there's several things to consider. 
So first of all, I think it's important to note if this is a retroperitoneal lymph node that was present at the time of diagnosis, or if this is a retroperitoneal lymph node that actually developed over the course of surveillance. And there's not a lot of data behind this, but if it's a node that developed over the course of surveillance, we have some natural history to indicate that um, they haven't developed widespread metastases, so surgery could be um, attractive in that setting. Again, I think a multidisciplinary approach where you have the radiologist, pathologist, medical oncologist, urologist, and um, radiation oncologist discussing these cases is also imperative. Now, let's say they've got retroperitoneal disease. If we jumped in there, especially in somebody who was newly diagnosed and did an RPLND, actually in about 20 to 30% of the patients, we're going to find no cancer. So the good news is no cancer. The bad news is you underwent a fairly uh, significant surgery to kind of um, ascertain whether or not you have cancer or not. I think also what's going on in the primary tumor, if it's pure teratoma, if there's a malignant transformation, then retroperitoneal lymph node dissection is often more attractive because those uh, particular histologies are resistant to chemotherapy. Then when you actually look at the nodes, I think there are several features that are important. One is how many. You know, one to two nodes is probably going to be a clinical scenario where surgery is more attractive. Once you get beyond three to five, you really have to worry about not only cancer cells being in the retroperitoneum, but other parts of the body as well. So the number of nodes is important. The size of the nodes, um, typically, and of course, there's nuances to this. Once you get beyond about three centimeters, um, and this is just general guidelines, the likelihood of having a curative intervention uh, for patients with pathological N2 disease, which you're likely going to have, becomes somewhat low. And then, of course, it's important to take um, into account the patient's desires and preferences. So there's pros with surgery, including avoiding some of the long-term side effects of chemotherapy, such as early-onset heart disease and the development of secondary cancers that may be attractive with surgery. You know, on the flip side, there is a, a small, albeit real, increased chance of having a recurrence if you undergo surgery, since we are just treating one area of the body as opposed to chemotherapy that obviously goes throughout the body. But for the sake of completeness, in seminoma, historically, if you've got stage two disease, the options are chemotherapy and radiation therapy, uh, which are both highly effective. That's the good news. But again, we see these long-term side effects of potentially nerve damage, secondary cancers, heart disease, injury to the kidneys. And recently, um, retroperitoneal lymph node dissection has received, I would say, renewed interest in the management of patients with stage two seminoma. Uh, two large clinical studies, one out of Europe and one from uh, the United States. Uh, we were happy to participate and we're the fourth highest contributing institution. And essentially, that showed in patients with retroperitoneal disease, less than three centimeters, no more than about two nodes, that the likelihood of being cured with surgery alone was excellent, and the need for additional therapy was quite low. So I think over the next um, upcoming years, we're actually going to see an uptake in surgery for patients with seminoma as well, again, with the idea of potentially avoiding the long-term toxicities of chemotherapy or radiation. Thank you. That was a really great overview. Uh, so what are the situations where you consider watching and waiting before initiating treatment? 
It's a great question. And, um, you know, first off, I would say that generally when it comes to testis cancer management, nearly always it's preferred to get the diagnosis right, to be deliberate instead of hastily jumping in into any type of an intervention. So to start with, I oftentimes see patients with what we call indeterminate scrotal masses. Um, these are generally non-palpable. Maybe they had ultrasound for some testicular pain or as a part of an infertility evaluation and something abnormal uh, was identified. Now, in that scenario, if the serum tumor markers are negative, there's nearly certainly no urgency to jump in and do anything invasive. Um, our American Urology Association guidelines indicate that repeat imaging in six to eight weeks with an ultrasound to see if this thing is growing, if it's changing, if it's developing features that are consistent with cancer are perfectly reasonable. And that's what I do in my clinical practice. So the small indeterminate testicular mass actually before the diagnosis of a cancer is a scenario I think it's okay to wait. There are others that advocate for actually going in and surgically removing the area of concern and also taking biopsies around that with the idea being that if a tumor was identified, you would go ahead and remove the remainder of the testicle. But if there's no tumor identified and no evidence of any precancerous lesions on the biopsy, that that can actually be replaced back into the scrotum. Um, there's never been a study and likely never will be of keeping an eye on things with an ultrasound versus enucleating it. But I think the bottom line is we don't need to be rushing in to do anything like removal of the testicle at that time. The second clinical scenario where I think it's quite important to be a little bit more deliberate is in patients with stage two disease. So these are the patients that I, that, as I mentioned earlier, have evidence of a retroperitoneal lymph node or lymph nodes. So again, if you go in and jump to doing an operation in about 20 to 30% of those patients, there's going to be no cancer identified. So what I do in my clinical practice, let's just say surgery is indicated or chemotherapy or radiation before jumping in and treating the patient, I will repeat imaging from top to bottom as well as tumor markers, chest, abdomen, pelvis, CT and serum tumor markers. And if that node has gone away, then you're feeling pretty good to maintain yourself on a surveillance program. If you've developed metastases, then of course we're going to be treating with chemotherapy. But if that node's just a little bit bigger, it's remaining consistent with a testicular cancer metastasis, that's the patient that you're likely going to benefit with a local regional treatment, such as retroperitoneal lymph node dissection or radiation, which is still sometimes offered. So in that small volume stage two disease is another important aspect of, of watching and waiting. And then finally, in patients that have received chemotherapy and they've had a good serum tumor marker response and a lot of their disease has, has melted away, we sometimes see what are called residual masses. It's pretty consistent to, across guidelines that if those masses are greater than about one centimeter, the standard of care is to go in and surgically remove them. Typically, that's a post-chemotherapy retroperitoneal lymph node dissection. But if they're less than one centimeter or right at about one centimeter, in those cases, I'll often embark on an early period of surveillance where we repeat imaging, for instance, in um, three months to start. And if it's continuing to shrink or if it's staying stable, and certainly if it's not growing, then you can fairly confidently remain on our surveillance program. But it is imperative that the patients are reliable and have been uh, 
thoroughly explain how important it is to continue to follow things. Of the agents that are currently in development for testicular cancer, which do you think are going to be the most promising? It's an excellent question. And um, if I had to say and hypothesize about what the next major game changer in, in testicular cancer is going to be, it's going to be microRNAs. And these are uh, non-coding RNAs that are measurable in the blood. And suffice it to say that they have an excellent sensitivity and specificity for the diagnosis and prediction of whether cancer cells are present or absent. And if we kind of walk through the disease spectrum, so if a, a new patient comes in with a suspicious mass, currently the standard of care is to get a tumor, uh, tumor markers as well as an ultrasound. I think we'll see in the next several years that a microRNA test before removal of the testis will be able to tell us with excellent, excellent sensitivity and specificity if a cancer cell is likely to be present or not. And these are uh, blood tests. Um, they're in development. Our, our lab's done a lot of work on microRNAs. And before testis removal, they're very, very good at predicting. In patients that have had their testicle removed without any evidence of metastases, there's a lot of promise that the microRNAs can help predict who's likely to have small occult metastases that may benefit from additional treatment and who is likely to have been cured with removal of their testicle alone and can be safely watched. As we get into more advanced stages of disease, the microRNAs are highly diagnostic and they may provide some information on who's responding to chemotherapy, who could potentially have treatment de-escalated with less cycles, or who may not be responding and need to go on to uh, more intensive uh, treatments potentially. So that's, that's kind of, I think, really what's captured the attention and excitement of the germ cell tumor community, both you know, domestically in the United States and internationally as well. And there's some several uh, ongoing clinical trials uh, along the lines of microRNAs. Once, fortunately, the majority of patients with testicular cancer are cured with some combination of chemotherapy, retroperitoneal lymph node dissection or surgery, and radiation. However, about 10 to 15% will have disease that's kind of refractory. And I actually think that, you know, despite our best efforts of of newer interventions, including immunotherapy trials, which have largely been unsuccessful, targeted therapy trials, which are ongoing, but haven't really been game changers. The bulk of, I, I think, the resources are currently trying to identify early on who's likely to have really bad, multiply refractory disease. How can we identify it early, intensify treatment earlier, and preclude them from getting to a point where they have a more dangerous tumor? So to wrap up, do you have any words of advice for members of the cancer care team who are treating and managing patients with testicular cancer? I do. I do. You know, I think it's always important to remember that these are young cancer survivors that must contend with the treatment-related effects for the rest of their lives. It's absolutely incumbent upon us to be deliberate and um, get the diagnosis perfectly correct and offer them the perfect care. And there's actually a lot of data that suggests that this type of care is offered at um, expert and experienced centers of excellence where you see a large volume of testis cancer. There's only about 9,000 cases in the U.S. annually. And if you don't have familiarity with this disease, um, we really have an opportunity to not just help patients but potentially hurt them if you don't really have a comprehensive understanding of, of the disease. So I would just say that, you know, if this is something that you don't see often in your center, consult centers with experience and expertise. 
uh, nearly certainly across the germ cell tumor and testis cancer world. Um, you know, I certainly love receiving consults. I receive them all the time to offer my advice. I think it's absolutely critical to review all new cases in multidisciplinary teams. Um, there's plenty of data that suggests that this is associated with, um, with best outcomes. And finally, all available options. Many times there's multiple options, chemotherapy, radiation, surgery. They should be offered to the patients, taking into account the patient's preferences as well. And uh, they should be available in, um, in a high-quality format. And I can certainly attest uh, when it comes to retroperitoneal lymph node dissection and testis cancer surgery, you want to have a surgeon that um, sees a lot of patients, does a lot of these operations, and is familiar with the nuances. Thank you so much for sharing all this valuable information with us today. Thank you for listening to Oncology Data Advisor. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. In addition to our podcast, the Oncology Data Advisor site features expert perspectives and news stories on the latest in cancer research and treatments, all found at oncdata.com. 